I'm Peter Payne. Uh, my wife, Jan, and I live here in Mount Hermon. We actually lived uh, in a variety of places before then. For quite a while before that, we were in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was grad faculty staff with university, <clears throat> and we moved out here to care for uh, my younger brother, who is now in a group home in Watsonville. So we moved from Michigan out to, uh, out to here in uh, 2007, and uh, we have deep roots here in Mount Hermon. My grandparents bought property here, I think, 1910. Is that right? 1912? Okay. So in 1912, they bought property. My grandmother was best friends with a couple daughters of the founders of, of Mount Hermon. So the founder's cabin was actually one of the, my, my grandmother's best friends. <clears throat> so uh, we loved Mount Hermon. I was three years on summer staff, two years in the kitchen. Uh, not our current kitchen, things have been redone greatly since that time. <clears throat> uh, and then the last summer, I was a counselor at Ponderosa, which uh, you may not may realize that this year is his 50th anniversary. So it's celebrating 50 years of service. I was a counselor there the second year as an operation. So, and so was Dates, <laughs> <laughs> so Dates, Tom was a pastor in the Central Valley, and we were on staff here together. And uh, you're, you're in, the, in the kitchen, too, weren't you, as well as being yes, counselor? Yeah. kitchen in 68, Redwood in 69, Ponderosa in 70 and 71. All right, all right. So we love this place and uh, love what Mount Herman does. And I've been doing seminars for, oh, 11 years, something like that now. I started when we were in the, the economic collapse, you know, the big economic crisis. And organizations like Mount Hermon were hard strapped for finances, and people weren't able to, able, most people weren't able to make it to the family camps. And so at that time, they weren't able to pay seminar leaders. <clears throat> so I volunteered, and oh, okay. <laughs> so I came in at an easy, at easy time. Now they do give a little bit to the seminar leaders. <clears throat> My trains in philosophy, I have a PhD in philosophy, and I love difficult questions. My wife and I are with a nonprofit called the Institute for Credible Christianity. And besides working with a grad student fellowship at UC Santa Cruz, we also go over to Europe every year, usually for two months in the spring, by invitation from Christian student movements there. And I'll actually back in Europe, just myself this time, usually Janet and I, my wife and I travel together, but I'll be back in Germany for an all-Europe uh, student conference that's multi-sponsored by the IFES, universities, a part of the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. The uh, crew was called Agape in, uh, in Europe, usually. And Navigators, and I think International Friends, a couple other uh, student organizations. And I've been asked to do two seminars for it. So I'm delighted to, to be back uh, at that time. <clears throat> Uh, Christmas Day, I got a cheap flight out. Uh, flying around that time of year, they aren't as cheap of flights as normal. But we uh, managed to, to scout around and get cheap flights, and it's, it's a real delight for me to be able to serve European students. I like skeptics, and there are lots of skeptics in Europe, so <clears throat> it works out very well. The top title for the talk today is I Don't Need God. And I actually came up with doing a, a, a seminar on that topic when I was at an all-Germany Easter conference this last spring. And there was a seminar on answering hard questions, and the leader asked people to give questions they would like to have addressed. 
So on a sheet of paper, he had about eight different questions. And he said, vote for the top three, and we'll address the top three. And the one which got the most votes, to my surprise, was how do I respond to someone who says, I don't need God? I mean, that's kind of a conversation stopper, right? <laughs> but, so I got to think, you know, what lies behind that? Uh, so I put together the, the, the seminar that we're, we're doing today. Uh, I'd like to have a start off by turning to someone near you. And the question is, do you know anyone who has told you, I don't need God? Or very much conveys the impression uh, they, don't, they think they don't need God. And what do you think lies behind that comment or the person that you're thinking of? So let's turn to someone next to you and think about uh, the, the, someone who's either said or pretty sure has the attitude, I don't need, need God. And then what do you think lies behind that? Okay, you might be able to keep going for a while, but why don't we come back together? What were some of the thoughts? Why do you think a person would say, I don't need God? Or people that you know, what do you think lies behind that attitude? Yeah. My brother is very successful. He's kind of a woman. He's got a lot of success in his life. He's got a lot of uh, prestige and money. And, and, and he's very Christian acting as far as being giving and loving towards like his employees and whatever, you know. But he, he's got it made. He's got two million dollar houses, he's got a thriving million dollar restaurant, he's successful, and I think it's just, he said to me, I don't need to, I mean, he's got what for, you know? Mm. Yes, I'm doing fine, I don't need God, so there's a subscript behind that, people go to church or religious because of emotional needs. They, they need some sort of crutch to be able to help them. I'm doing fine. And then there's the other part where you're saying, well, I'm a good person. Uh, I don't need God to be a good person. Many people have the idea, well, the value of religion is that for some people, anyway, it motivates them to be better people than they would be otherwise. So it helps people to become good people. But I'm a good person, so I don't need God. Other thoughts you had? Yes. Yeah, so for a lot of people, there's negative experiences that I've had. Been there, done that, didn't, don't, don't like that. Don't like what I see there, don't like some of the values. There's sort of this, that whole backlog of negative experiences which they may have had, say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested. Uh, but there's another part you said in addition to that. The restrictions, they don't want Oh, restrictions, yeah. Right. There's a, there's a woman that I knew, a PhD student uh, in philosophy at the University of Michigan, <clears throat> who has Russian family, grew up in St. Petersburg, parents are atheists. She'd come to believe in God, but hadn't come to believe in the Christian faith yet. And uh, we were together, and she asked, well, why would anybody want to be a Christian? 
I mean, just so many rules. I thought, wow, that's, that's, not, my, that's not my experience. The, the Christianity has all those rules. Historically, Jesus got criticized because he didn't follow the rules rigorously enough. There are all these rules. Jesus, you're not adhering to all these rules. Uh, you're, you're working on the Sabbath. You're doing things. You're, uh, so actually, ironically, Jesus, Christians who are accused of being so, oh, it's all bunch of rules. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Uh, so you have that kind of attitude. Plus, the people think, well, if you want to have fun, who wants to be a Christian? <laughs> They're no fun. I mean, after all, you want to be able to party and have a good time. I mean, Christians just, Ugh, yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> so they have these images of what, what Christians are like and what the Christian faith is like. And sometimes experiences themselves, which have been strongly negative experiences. Yeah. Right, so Christianity is too narrow. I mentioned on Tuesday that one of the three, I was at an all-Germany conference and asked them what the three major objections, barriers to the faith were for the non-Christians they knew. And I, interesting enough, all six groups came up with the same three. One was science, one was the problem of evil and suffering, the other one was the exclusivity. How can you say Jesus is the only way? I mean, after all, there's other religions and very sincere people, and how can you say that you are right? Or that if you don't believe what you believe, you don't believe the right thing, then you're destined to an eternity in hell. Yeah, so sometimes it's, 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 uh, it's, when they say, I don't need God, it's that they're not necessarily completely atheistic, um, but I don't need your God, or I don't need the God of the Bible. Any other thoughts? Right, and that I, right, I don't need for there to be a God. It could be in terms of, well, I don't need God to be doing things for me. I'm fine. Or uh, I don't need to believe in God to sort of fill in this gap. Sort of like, well, where did the universe come from? Where did life, how did life begin? So sort of questions like that. And people say, well, we don't have all the answers yet, but we're filling in the, the picture pretty well, and we don't need to bring God in. Uh, there's a... A famous story, I don't know if it actually happened, but there's a, the story is that Napoleon once came to Pierre Laplace, who is a physicist, mathematician, wrote a five-volume book on the solar system. And he was actually, Napoleon was tutored by Laplace. And he came to Laplace and asked Laplace, why is it in your book on the solar system there's no mention of God? And his response was, I have no need of that hypothesis. Physics is able to account for the solar system. I don't need to bring God a picture, so I don't need. There's other explanations we give, and I don't lapse into, well, I don't know, so therefore I'll, I'll invoke God from what I don't know. Good. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah, and God is mean. Uh, maybe that they you know, knew, knew, some, knew some things out of the Old Testament. 
there's a paper that I'm working on entitled, What About the Canaanites? A couple of years ago, I actually gave a seminar here on what about the Canaanites. And it sounds as though God is commanding genocide. And after all, there's hardly any crimes which are worse than genocide. I mean, murder is one thing, but trying to kill out a whole, whole group of people, that's, so it, it could sound that way. Um, it's actually much more complicated than that. The I will drive them out uh, is much more common than wipe them out. And it turns out that many of them did flee. And there wasn't an effort to go chase after them, to hunt them down, to wipe them out. Uh, there was two years ago a, a DNA test done on a Canaanite tomb, grave, in Lebanon. And they discovered by looking at the DNA from this Canaanite that current-day Lebanese are largely Canaanite, which means not only were there a few Canaanites who fled and settled Lebanon, but there were a lot of them that fled. Uh, and the aim, I, I believe, was not to wipe out the Canaanites, but to purge the land of that pagan presence so that God would be able to establish his people under his rules and that he could bless the nations through having the people who actually follow, do things God's way. And as long as there was those people who were there who were saying, well, do this and do this, it would be too much of a temptation. And God says, if you don't uh, remove them from the land, then you will be sucked into following their ways. And if you do what they do, then I will bring judgment upon you. But it's a complicated question. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so sometimes people are like, God is a mean God. Or sometimes if God has the power to eliminate suffering, why didn't he do, more, do so more often? I had a, an allergy doctor who was, who was Jewish in background. And actually, as a young lad, he was in Germany at the time of Adolf Hitler and managed to escape. At one point, he was behind this bush with two members of the Gestapo on the other side. If they looked his direction, they would have seen him. But they didn't, and he managed to get out of Germany and move to the U.S. But he didn't interpret that as God was gracious to me and saved my life. He said, uh, there must be no God. Certainly, uh, it can't be the case that the Jews are God's chosen people uh, for this to have happened. So there are things like that which sometimes lie behind the the rejection of belief in God. I have three broad categories of what lies behind the comment, I don't need God. One is the skeptic. He simply doesn't believe it's true. It's not true. I don't need it. I don't need fairy tales. I can live with reality. Uh, I can, I can, I, I'll, I'll do fine. <clears throat> then there is the antagonist, the person who has some ax to grind. I don't need God because I don't like God or I don't like the God of the Bible or I don't like certain Christian doctrines, or I don't like Christians. So oftentimes people have some negative experiences with, uh, with, with Christians and say, I don't, I don't need that. No, I'm out of here. Uh, then there are those who are just simply contented with where they're at. Don't necessarily have an ax to grind. I'm, I'm doing fine. I don't need God. I'm a good person. Um, no, I'm, 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 I'm fine. Uh, there was a friend of mine whose mother uh, was, the whole time she was growing up, was an atheist. And the last time I talked to her, it was probably eight years or so ago, um, but that time she said she was talking to her mom, who was then in her 80s and getting up there. She said, Mom, you know, you know how much longer you'll have to live? Uh, don't you ask yourself what will happen when you die? And she said, well, 
I assume that when I die, that'll just be the end. And if there is life after death, there is some God that's there, I'm sure I'll be fine. <laughs> well, where does that come from? Well, God's merciful and kind, and she considers herself to be a decent person. I'm a decent person. I'll do fine if there's a God. All right? So somehow we've been failed to communicate some, some of the things that, that need to be communicated about the gospel. And, but again, time and time again, you have these, these false impressions or these ideas about what the Christian faith is like or things that, that are stumbling blocks for them. Uh, good question to ask of a person who says they used to be a Christian. And I mentioned this on Tuesday, is do you wish the Christian faith were true? If the person says, yeah, I do, well, that tells you there's not really a motivational problem. They've, they've been persuaded, no, I, I just I can't believe it anymore. But it'd be nice if it were true. If they say, no, I don't wish it were true, well, why do you say that? That can get into just other issues. So you're much more apt to be on target and relate to the person where the issues really are by asking the question, do you wish it were true? Uh, <clears throat> Some skeptic responses if you ask, why do you say I don't need God? I'm a good person. I have no need for belief in life after death. I can, I can live with this being all there is. Belief in God is an emotional crutch. I don't need it. I have no need for fairy tales. I only believe that for which there's good evidence. So believe in God, no thank you. Uh, church isn't my thing. I have better things to do on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Going and listening to boring sermons, that's, that, that's not what I want to do. I have more, more important things to do. I'm not a church-going kind of person. God has never done anything for me. Now, that may be that they actually called out to God at some point, and God didn't come through for them, and decided God's, God, God's, God's not there. Uh, I don't want God or anyone else telling me what to do. So there are various people who don't want the restrictions. I don't want any authority over me. I want to be able to decide what I, how I want to live my life and live it my way. And I don't want to have any, any being telling me this is how I need to live. I believe in something, but I don't want your God. Uh, and then belief in God has done more harm than good. I don't need God. Look at what all the terrible things that have been done in the name of God. In fact, you have some atheists who would say that civilization, history, human history, would be much better off if there wasn't faith in God. I think I may have mentioned Tuesday that actually faith in, in something larger than yourself is actually a strong motivator. But it could be a motivator to do things worse than normal people would or better than normal people would. So you look at some of the, the people who flew the, flew the planes in the World Trade Center, they, their belief in God was a powerful motivator and led them to do something which, from our perspective, is horrendous. But on the other hand, you look back at, you look back and say, the history in the West and humanitarian organizations, Salvation Army, hospitals, uh, reaching out, serving people. Almost always this is motivated by Christian motivation. So the question isn't, is, is religious faith good or bad, but what are the foundational values and beliefs behind it? And when you look at the things that Jesus taught, you actually realize if people follow Jesus, they wouldn't be killing their neighbor in the name of Christianity. Because after all, Jesus told us to love our enemies. So I sort of color-coded some of those uh, comments by um, uh, skeptic, antagonist, and contentment. Sometimes a person says, I don't need God. There's legitimate criticism that lies behind that. 
When a person says, uh, I don't need an emotional crutch, I think we actually sometimes, as Christians, communicate to people. Well, the reason why you need to become a Christian is you're lonely, and God will solve your loneliness. Or you're anxious, and God will eliminate your anxiety. Or you're depressed, and God will help you overcome your depression. Or you're in some sort of financial or marital crisis or drugs or something like that. Well, turn to God, and he can help you out of the hole. Uh, and it's true, and it's wonderful when that happens. And I hear a person tell a story of I was a criminal, and uh, I was in prison, and some Christian met me, and my life was turned around. Hooray, right? But if you're not in that kind of background, you think, okay, well, people who become Christians out of desperation. And I'm no, I don't have any desperation. It's not as though my life is in crisis, and I need that. So they view it as being, well, people believe in it because of these crises. But if you think about the uh, original disciples, they didn't follow Jesus as an emotional crutch. <laughs> they followed Jesus knowing full well they might die for their belief in him. And Jesus made it quite clear that uh, fear not those who can kill the body, rather fear the one who has control over both your, your life and your, and your soul. Um, so they, they were following Jesus because he was doing where the things that were going to bring about the ultimate good in, in the world. He was, God was going to bring about his purposes, establish the kingdom of God. And they were laying down their lives for it. It wasn't uh, an emotional crutch. In fact, if you go through the Gospels, you find that Jesus has compassion and mercy, but he's never saying, okay, now feel good about yourself. Go and sin no more. Whether your life's need to change, you need to act on it. You need to put your, put your beliefs into practice. And I think as we have Christians, rather than presenting a gospel of, of emotional benefits, uh, that, uh, that, that if, we, if we communicate it, actually, it's a privilege and honor to be able to serve God. And serving and loving God brings us to love and serve others. So the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it. It's like it. Well, it flows out of that, that if you love God and God loves other people, then you will grow in your love for other people. And if that were to characterize us rather than simply sort of good feelings uh, when we get together, I think we'd be quite, for many people, we'd be much more attractive. And I think we'd be more faithful to what Jesus is calling us to. <clears throat> the effect of the Christian faith, Christian faith why is it that Christianity grew so quickly? There is a book by Rodney Stark entitled The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. And his point was that the values that Christians lived out and how they treat other people was just very attractive, and people were drawn to it. He mentions at one point that there was a plague, and the people who had the money and the wherewithal left the communities try to get away from people to keep themselves safe. But Christians actually went and served the sick and the dying. And that had a huge impression on people. There's something about these Christians that's different. And the, the percentage of people that, that believe following Jesus rose considerably after that. So when we live out what Jesus actually calls us to, you know, how can we be more effective in evangelism? We need to be proclaiming the gospel but at the same time, we need to be living the lives that God has called us to live. And this, by the way, the rise of, uh, rise of Christianity prior to Constantine, after it became the official religion and there was persecution against people who weren't Christians, then you had a lot of nominal Christians. 
But before that time, people who said they were Christians actually really believed it, rather than going along, well, this is, this is what our culture, this is what our society does. Uh, I've also I've talked about the emotional benefits. Uh, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be successful? Do you want internal peace? Do you want a happy marriage? Do you want a harmonious family? Do you want to be part of a loving community? Do you want to go to heaven? Well, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want any of those things? Of course you want that. <clears throat> but that's the message that they hear. Well, yes, that's what we want. Well, then become a Christian. Well, actually, Jesus uh, says some things that are quite radically different than that. Uh, Luke 14 uh, reads, Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is using some hyperbole here. Jesus was not actually telling his disciples to hate family members. That's <laughs> quite clear. He says, hate even your own life. Well, he's not saying you're supposed to hate the fact that you're alive and hate yourself. No, Jesus wasn't teaching that. But he was saying that the bond that you have with anything other than me has to take second place. And if there's that strong bond and there's a strong temptation to be drawn to that, then turn your back against it. So it's hate in a, in a strong sort of language. Just turn away from whatever is going to compete with me in terms of your loyalties. I'm working on an essay, which if you sign up, uh, uh, so when I finish up, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you, which is looking at the cost of discipleship and, and what that means. Uh, another response looking at this is to say, well, it's the cost of discipleship for the original disciples. Although Jesus isn't speaking to the original disciples, he's just speaking to the crowd. But I might say, well, it's for those who would physically follow Jesus. And some of the strength of what's said here is, is specifically for them. So we don't leave property and homes typically in becoming a Christian. Whereas they would if they were physically following Jesus. But it's quite clear from the, what Jesus says in context where the question is asked, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, just simply believe these things. <laughs> he's, he's, he, he plays out the cost of commitment to him, that that's what being a follower of his is, and that's what's going to be involved in, in, in entering the kingdom of God. Yes? Yeah, so the recording, the comment was that becoming a Christian doesn't mean everything's going to go smooth for you. There's considerable cost that can come with that. Uh, and we need to recognize that. But that cost is worth it. I mean, after all, if the Christian faith is, is worth what Christians say it is, then it's worth a high cost. And giving yourself for that actually enriches life. One of the, one of the factors that is most important in personal happiness is believing that your life was meaningful. 
And by personal happiness, I'm not simply talking about an emotional, you know, you know, flirty kind of that that kind of light, but a, a deep satisfaction with yourself and with your life. If you believe that your life was meaningful in terms of the greater good, that gives a great deal of satisfaction to your life. So even just from a, a secular standpoint, if something is important enough, paying the price for it actually enriches your life. Whereas simply sort of, a, oh, okay, here's a freebie. No, that freebie isn't going to mean very much to you, but if it actually changes your life, uh, it adds fullness to your life. Uh, let me just uh, go on, uh, skip over a couple things here. Jesus promised to give life to the full. This is in the context of he's the good, uh, he's the good shepherd, and he's giving life to the full for his sheep. But what does fullness of life mean? If one thinks it's just comfort and ease, no economic problems, everything will go well. No, that's not what he means by having life to the full. It's living life for God's purposes and discovering life for the full. And peace I live with you, not as the world gives you. What kind of peace can the world give? Well, sometimes the peace, they give you, leave you alone and give you some tranquility. The peace that God gives is a peace that can endure even in the midst of tribulation and hard, hard circumstances. Sometimes I ask myself, why isn't most churches women outnumber men? It's true in almost every church. Uh, I think part of it is that we, that we have an emotional benefits gospel. And there are emotional benefits. There are wonderful benefits. But at the same time, men are, I think, typically drawn more by work and task and what can I do, what can I accomplish. And my experience is that for men, when you challenge them, there's a much more favorable response than when you say, if you become a Christian, you'll have peace of mind. I mean, we need peace of mind. Everyone needs peace of mind. But we need to be challenged to actually follow God. And uh, the the Jesus movement, interestingly enough, I was around at university during that time, was roughly equal numbers of men and women. Well, why was that? Well, if you're a part of the Jesus movie, you're out there. You're putting your life on the line. You're, you're saying, this is where I stand. You're, you're bold about your faith. Uh, and uh, so <clears throat> it, it's, that's just a reflection. Uh, there's the image that people have of Christians, which is oftentimes quite negative. So we are anti-abortion, at least most Christians are, and I'm anti-abortion. But are we consistently pro-life? Are we only concerned about life before birth? But once the baby's born, do we really not, are we not adamant in seeking the welfare of the, of the, of the children? And I think it's a legitimate criticism of Christians to say, well, we stand for this issue, but when it comes to infants and children, others who are in need, we refuse to pay a penny to try to help, help them. And that doesn't say that the liberal solutions are good solutions. Oftentimes the, the, the solutions, you know, pouring money at it actually makes the problem worse. But from my perspective, the problem isn't the government is spending too much money on people's needs. It's not spending it well. It's not the amount. It's how it's being spent, which is the crucial story. But unfortunately, there are a lot of, a lot of non-Christians who view Christians as being uncaring people. We're followers of Jesus. How can we be viewed as uncaring people? Well, it's because of the sort of political slant. I mean, it's sort of a knee-jerk reaction. If you're a Christian, you're a Republican. Well, not necessarily. But not everything a Republican Party does is Christian. And somehow we sort of get in line with, uh, the, the, well, this is the Republican Party, and the Republican Party isn't, and it stands for things. But, I mean, just then we get labeled as being this kind of person. 
I was in, uh, in London, or I was in, uh, in, in the UK, actually I was in Oxford, and I was at a cafe and talking to a woman who, uh, uh, that was the time George Bush was uh, in, in uh, Iraq, uh, and uh, she said, if, if being a Christian makes George Bush do these kinds of things, Christianity must be a very dangerous thing. <laughs> so people associate the things that you, that you associate with and then uh, give a, a, a label to it. Uh, Trump claims to be a Christian, and I'm not God, but at the same time, he said, I have nothing to be repentant about. Now, as evangelicals, you recognize that part of becoming a Christian is recognizing you're wrong and coming before God in repentance. Uh, but the identification between evangelicals and Trump has is, is caused a huge amount of damage, whereas as Christians are honest about it, saying, no, we don't, we don't support his, his, his sexual immorality, his racist comments, all that kind of thing. But unfortunately, it, the impression that's given is that, well, evangelicals are uncaring people who don't, don't care about the, the, these political things. So it just, it saddens me when the gospel's brought down by our association with someone. Now, regardless of, sort of how you think you should vote, given, given the various issues, uh, I won't get into that. But it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of baggage which you carry. And when people, I don't need God. We're living with some of the baggage uh, that, that, that's there. For people who are content, not open to change, I mentioned the book I Once Was Lost, or I may mention earlier, uh, and it's different thresholds a person has to cross before they cross the threshold of becoming a Christian. The middle one, number three there, is moving from being close to change to being open to change. If a person is close to change, is content with where they're at, it's very unlikely they're going to become a Christian, particularly if they're in a pretty secular setting. I mean, if you're in the Bible Belt, Maybe not so much, uh, but if, you're, if, you're, if you have you know, secular friends and secular colleagues who work, becoming a Christian is not advantageous for you, just in terms of your own, how people uh, view you. Uh, so how do you help a person move from being close to change to being open to change? Uh, how about we do or say that will help with this? One suggestion is that we need to be transparent. If I'm honest and say, these are things I'm struggling with, and I'm not there, and the person I'm talking to hears us being honest about our struggles, they're more apt to be honest about their struggles. Whereas initially, they might have said, I'm a good person. When you're sharing your struggles, they become more transparent about their struggles, and it turns out not everything is so rosy after all in their life. And they could be more honest. So it begins to highlight some of the things which in our life I want to have changed. And they think, well, maybe I could stand a little change myself in that. There needs to be an understanding of the reality of where they're at. The bad isn't all there, bad's in me. And a recognition of what I could or should become. And both of those things are important in a person's coming to faith in Christ. When we try to be a good testimony... Actually, I think we do less for the gospel than if we're transparent about our struggles. This is where God's called me to be. I'm not there that. This is what I'm working on. Uh, I ask God for help with this, but uh, I oftentimes fail. That kind of honesty is actually very helpful. And another person, you're genuine. You can relate to you. Maybe God could be relevant to my life as well. Encourage them to look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus and see what Jesus was like, you have a standard that's considerably above just being a good person by, by our standards. It's also important for the person to see that not only you as a Christian are a person they like and can trust, 
but there's a connection between you and what Jesus was like. So there are quite a few people who like me and say, oh, I don't like Christians, but you're okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad they like me, but they don't see the connection between my faith and the values that, that I have. So I mentioned last time, if you, can, if you can get people a connection with Christian community where they can actually see that, that makes a difference. I mentioned uh, on Tuesday a person who, whom I met as a skeptic, and then to my surprise, I was visiting a church I don't normally attend, and there's a baptism, and he was being baptized. And part of what was significant to him was that he was involved with InterVarsity at UC Santa Cruz and was impressed by the character of those people, like those people. And he was drawn to the Christian community, and the association between the Christian community and the values they had uh, came together for him. Animosity, things that people don't like. It could be negative experiences, sort of intellectual straitjacket. It could be judgmentalism on the part of Christians, hypocrisy, uh, the televangelist who gets caught in some sexual scandal, ah, you know, or you find out how much money this person is actually pocketing and kind of the kind of life they're, they're, they're leading and having these pleas and, you know, people are sending in their, sending in their money and the person is living high off the hog. Um, that, that, that's, that, that can lie behind it. Exclusivity of the gospel, I mentioned before. Uh, faith can be viewed as, as being against reason. Go with what your reason tells you. Faith is sort of blind faith in their, in their thinking. There's the topic of hell. There's the topic of sexuality. My wife's twin brother is homosexual. And for him, it was an issue, well, I'm going to follow my sexual feelings or am I going to believe the Bible? I'll follow my sexual feelings. Uh, and we love him dearly and we're close to him. But there are issues like that which can, which can be points of dislike. Um, uh, I mentioned earlier the, the, the Canaanites, so there's a variety of things that, that could come into play there. What I have in the rest of our time, just look a little bit at some bridges to faith for the skeptic. The person who says, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's true, or I, I don't believe it. If a person says, I don't need God, one response you could give is to say, are you saying I don't need God because you believe he's not there? Or are you saying, even if God is there, I don't need God. <laughs> that probably because the person's from thought. Well, I assume God's not there. If he were there, would I still say I don't need God? <clears throat> I mean, that, that can be the subject. So for many people these days, they sort of assume God's not there. They assume that religion is a matter of your culture, uh, cultural expression. This is a, uh, here's a motivator, sort of a negative motivator. Francis Crick, Nobel Prize winner, for uh, the coming out with the structure of the DNA, writes, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Who you are is nothing but a pack of neurons. And you could read that to somebody who's a skeptic and say, does that reflect your view? Well, uh, don't usually think about it that way. I, I, I'm a person, and I, I, have, I have feelings and all that. I'm not just a pack of neurons. Well, if you're a, if you're a naturalist or a materialist, uh, your feelings are just sort of somehow fit into the picture of a purely physical being. You are just a pack of neurons that happen to have feelings that somehow arise from it or, or fit into the picture somehow. 
So most people you know, don't actually follow through with what their, what their worldview is in terms of what it means about who they are as persons. So who you are as a conscious person is a, is a bridge to helping them think about the other alternatives. There's a famous philosopher, atheist, Thomas Nagel at the New York University. He's famous within philosophy of mind. He wrote a book in 2012 by Oxford University Press. The main title was Mind and Cosmos, but the subtitle was The Grabber. The subtitle is Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Now, he's not anti-evolution, but the Neo-Darwinian sort of account is trying to give a purely physical account of how evolution occurred. And he says, if, if there's more than just physics if there's more, more to the natural world than just physics, there's something to explain how mind and consciousness arises, and then a neo-Darwinist theory of evolution cannot be complete. Uh, he, and he's very, very smart and gives quite good arguments. And I oftentimes use him and appeal to him to sort of shake up a bit the person's sense, well, I know that we're just atoms. And everything is just physics all the way down. Uh, if it's just physics all the way down, well, what is your feeling of pain? Is there any such thing? Well, it's, it's, it's what, pain behavior? Neurons firing? What is the feeling of pain? Nothing within physics would ever give you a clue that there's any reality of the feeling of pain other than pain behavior. But even most atheists really don't think that the feeling of pain is just pain behavior. You know, there's actually something more than just the muscles contracting, uh, that there actually is, a, uh, there is, is, is some reality to the feeling of pain. And even if we knew exactly what's happening in the brain from a physical standpoint, that wouldn't tell us why there's pain. The categories that are used within the sciences just don't encompass it. So if there really is a feeling of pain, if there really are conscious experiences, then our understanding of what is real out there is, is missing something crucial. Our picture, which is very mechanistic of the world, fails to account, not simply in terms of our not understanding it yet, but by its very categories, it seems like it never could. So even if I knew exactly what's happening in my brain when I have a conscious experience, these neurons connect in this way, how's that going to get conscious experience? If I have a computer, well, if I wire it the same, some way, then when I hit on the computer, the computer will feel pain. No, the computer won't feel pain. You may program it such that it'll, it'll type out or, or even have a voice box that says, ouch, don't do that. You know? But no, how, how do you ever get... So the whole concept of person and conscious experience is left out, and that leads him to the conclusion that naturalism, materialism, is almost certainly false. And for me, that's removing a huge barrier, because many people assume that Christianity is false, all religions are false, because those of us who follow science know that we're all just physics. Well, there's very, very good reasons for saying, no, we're not just physics. Unless you're really going to say that feelings of pain are just pain behavior or neurons firing in a particular way. And even most non-Christians would say, oh, not, not, not the case. Uh, let me say one other thing. There's a, there's a uh, <clears throat> professor, John Searle, he's now... I think he's still alive, but he was a professor at UC Berkeley, a staunch atheist, but he believed there really are feelings, and they're not reducible down to physical events, the physical structures. 
He said that when you have a brain functioning a certain kind of way, you have experiences arise from it. They're emergent properties. But he nonetheless affirms there's nothing there but your brain. It's not there's the brain stuff and then there's the mental stuff. Rather, the brain stuff gives rise to uh, these, these feelings. They're emergent properties. But if, in fact, there's nothing but your brain that's there, the next state of your brain is going to be determined by the prior state of the brain. If the prior state of the brain had some feelings, that's not what's going to cause the next state of the brain. It's the physical structure. It's the, it's the mass and energy of the system that's going to result in the next state of the brain. So even though you have a feeling, it doesn't determine the next day of the brain. So even though, even though John Searle says we really do have experiences, the experiences don't do anything from a causal standpoint. For an experience to actually cause something physically to happen, there has to be some mass or energy or something connected with the actual feeling of pain, which causes the next event to happen. But that, for that to be true, it has to be part of what's actually there. It can't just be an emergent property. Now, I may have lost you there, but it's, it's really crucial to see that a physical view of the world does not account for what we know to be true. And when you recognize that, yes, okay, there's pieces missing. Maybe science has to go through some revolution to be able to encompass what our experience as a personhood and what uh, conscious states are about. So if they, if they say, okay, the last word is not just what science tells us, then what's the, where is the right answer? The answer that uh, Thomas Nagel gives is that, there are, uh, that there's, a tele, there's a teleology, a natural teleology, sort of aiming towards goals, but there's no beings with wills behind it. He doesn't want any spirits, he doesn't want any God, but he wants there to be something like mind within the universe that's aiming towards goals, and that just seemed, do, 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 what's that? It makes much more sense to me that if, in fact, mind is real, there's something behind the universe itself that counts for it. So the option of theism becomes a very serious option once you said that naturalism is not the, the final answer. Free will. I was one time invited to speak to uh, meet with a group of uh, uh, the atheist organization at UC Santa Cruz. They called themselves the Secular Student Alliance. Now, it's a student group sort of defined by what they don't believe. <laughs> a little hard to, they're, they're not, they don't believe in God, that sort of defines who they are. <clears throat> well, the person who was organizing it was a grad student who I got to know, and he invited me to come. And in talking to him, I asked them, there were seven students, undergrads, and the, and the grad student, if they believe they had free will, namely, is your, your choice simply determined by the past, or you actually have the freedom to choose with open. And six of the seven undergrads said they did have free will, one of the undergrads did not, and the grad students said they, didn't, said they don't. Well, if you buy in the view that we're just physics, it seems to me that free will is an illusion. You feel like you're free, but everything that you do is determined by the prior states of your brain. And your conscious self is not actually even directing the course of your life at all. That's rather disconcerting. Uh, many, many atheist student organizations call themselves the free thinkers. But if they're an atheist, likely they can't believe in free thought. <laughs> that they aren't free thinkers. That by their very worldview, they can't be free thinkers. So the, the irony that's involved in that. So that, again, motivationally, people do want to believe that I actually have some control over the course of my life. Not that I'm free in everything I do, 
Uh, I don't think that's the case, but I think there are, there are moments where we can go one way or the other. And the question is, do we, in our conscious selves, do we have the power to be able to direct the course that we take? Along with that is moral responsibility. If I don't, then how can I be held morally responsible for what I do? If you have a computer that's programmed to do something and doesn't, you don't then punish the computer. <laughs> no, it just did what it was programmed to do. Likewise, if human beings are just programmed to do something, maybe by bad upbringing or whatever, you don't punish them. You pity them, perhaps, because they had the wrong kind of inputs, but you don't hold them morally responsible. But to get rid of moral responsibility is huge, just in terms of our own sense of meaning and, and worth. And it's important for society that we believe that, we, that people can actually ha have some responsibility for what they do. Uh, I noted the key element in human happiness is thinking that you're promoting the greater good. Most human beings believe that there is some right and wrong. Some people say oh, it's all relative. But when it comes down to it, they typically don't believe it. Even Bertrand Russell was very much opposed to the war in Vietnam. And he was one time asked, well, given your worldview, your atheistic worldview, why should people matter or the Vietnamese people matter? Why do you get sort of all these protests about the war in Vietnam? And he said, if it's not rational, I'd rather be good than be rational. <laughs> this is philosopher and atheist, right? Uh, so he recognizes that just sort of justifying it can be a difficult thing, and justifying it. Uh, but people really do have a strong motivation to believe what's right. And if believing what you're doing is meaningful in the broader sense, and you believe there is no broader meaningfulness, there is no broader right and wrong other than just what human beings are usually wired to do, then you undercut your own personal happiness because the satisfaction in your life is coming in the satisfaction of believing that you did what was right. There's a, um, my, Janet was, uh, my wife was on the internet uh, back in 2012 and this blog came, this, 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 this thing on the CNN came out, prominent atheist blogger becomes Catholic. So I went on the internet and looked it up. It's about a woman named Leah Labresco, who is a quite well-known uh, blogger on an atheist blog site. And she was at her blog that time declaring that she was leaving atheism and becoming Catholic. <laughs> so the report that I was reading on CNN was asking her about that, and she's quoted as saying, I believe that the moral law wasn't just a platonic truth, not just something written up there in the sky, um, but I actually believed it was some kind of person as well as truth. And if right and wrong, moral law is rooted in some personal being, who is this personal being? And looking around, the best option she could find was Jesus and the Christian faith. <clears throat> uh, the harmony between science and biblical faith. This is a, 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 a huge topic. But one point which uh, I like to underscore is the distinction between a call order nature miracles and specific point miracles. Order of nature miracles are things which God needs to do simply to sustain the natural order around us. So for instance, Isaac Newton thought that God needs to adjust the orbits of the planets every once in a while to keep them stable. He thought this because he recognized the gravity of the planets would affect each other's orbits. And he thought the other planets could destabilize the Earth's orbit. So he suggested that God every once in a while adjust them, doing a miracle to sustain the order of nature. Well, actually, it turns out he was wrong about that. There is an effect, but over time, they cancel each other out. But if, in fact, God did need to do that, that would be an order of nature miracle. 
None of the Bible, none of the miracles in the Bible are order of nature miracles. They're all specific point miracles. Miracles God does at a specific point for a specific purpose. Now, the one which one's hard to categorize is creation itself. I mean, how does, how does one categorize that? But look at all the other miracles in Scripture. They're done at a specific time for a specific purpose. They're not needed to sustain the weather system. They're not needed to sustain a birth or to sustain the world around us. And that's part of why the Christian faith took root as easily as it did within the West, because as Christians, we believed that God has created a world which is not God, and has created a world which is ordered. And in studying this world, we discover it's a world that has order. Wow, what a marvelous God to create such an exquisitely ordered world. Well, I suggest that in nearly every case, when it comes to sort of conscious states, the soul, what is that? There, there's some, some problems. But just about everywhere else, it appears to me that we live in a world where God does not need to do any miracles to sustain the natural order. <clears throat> He's created an, a natural order, order of nature which is exquisitely put together. But notice that doesn't tell us whether God does miracles for specific purposes. The success of science gives us reason to think there may be no order of nature miracles. It doesn't tell us there are no specific point miracles. Whether there are specific point miracles has to be answered historically. Science simply isn't going to answer that question. It's just going to tell us how things normally happen. So, for instance, with the virgin birth of Jesus, even if we knew exactly what happens from the moment of conception all the way up to when a baby is born, and at no point is there a violation of physics, everything follows natural laws, that wouldn't tell us that the virgin birth of Jesus couldn't take place. As a scientist, they say, well, that's not the way things normally happen. And if the virgin birth is true, it'd take a miracle. Okay, well, God, the claim is God did do a specific miracle at that specific point, and science doesn't tell us whether or not that happened. It just tells us how things normally take place. So if, if miracles have taken place, it has to be historical investigation, and science isn't going to answer that question for us. Uh, <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus, are there any cases where there's a good case for it? The resurrection of Jesus, actually, there's a very good case for that. One other thing, the big comment they make here is that sometimes people will say, even though miracles could happen, okay, science doesn't tell us that it couldn't happen, there's been no actual report of the miracle that has sufficient evidence to warrant our believing it actually happened. And I'll come back by asking, well, why do you say that? There are some miracles that have some pretty impressive support behind them. Why is it that the bar is set so high, so high in your mind that none of these reports have sufficient evidence? Probably their answer, if they're honest, is, well, I'm convinced miracles can't happen. That's why the bar is so high. <laughs> but science doesn't tell us the bar has to be this high. They're setting the bar that high because they already assume that miracles can't happen. So to say there have been no reports of miracles with sufficient evidence to warrant belief is circular reasoning on their part. They're just placing a bar so high that no report qualifies. When you look at the resurrection of Jesus, it actually explains the data far better than any naturalistic explanation. A person will respond by saying, okay, I may not have a good natural sort of explanation for the evidence related to the resurrection, but Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead because dead men don't rise. Namely, actual miracles don't happen. Well, when you say, we don't know that, let's, let's look at it. Plus, the one asks, the other reason of believing God is there or may be there. Uh, how does that come into the equation? There's no clear way of how high to set the bar. But when it comes to the question of the Christian faith, it's rooted in history and what God has done in history, and it has to have that kind of uh, basis. 
Plus, of course, it's also rooted in our experiences, experience of God's presence and providence. The end of my talk on Tuesday, I mentioned a person who I had become good friends with and met with for quite a while, uh, and uh, he finally became a Christian. And when he did, he said he'd been attending Mass. He was Catholic, attending Mass, and the priest was reading from the Gospels. And I said on Tuesday that he said, it struck me that God was speaking to me. It seems to me that experience is important. Rarely does a person become a Christian simply through rational, rational uh, calculations. Uh, there, there, there's almost always something within which is, I feel to me that God is actually reaching out to me. That it's not just a philosophical position that I'm embracing, but something where God is real and I can, I can, I can relate to him. And as I said last time, uh, I don't think God is going to sort of demonstrate himself to you in the way of doing something which could not possibly be explained in any natural way. But I do think if you're serious at following God, one, there's good reason to believe he's there. I think God really does want to meet you. So pray that God will, will in some way show himself to you, that it won't just be an intellectual mind game, but that God will reach out to you. So for the skeptic, there's motivation uh, to things, ways you can get at them to help them sort of become more open to the Christian faith. But there has to be a combination of, is it plausible? Am I attracted to this? Am I attracted to Jesus? What am I going to do about it? And the spirit has to be at work in all three levels of that in a person's life. I don't think we just independently do things on our own. We need God's help. But God is there to help us. So for people who seemed utterly closed, um, pray, be honest with them, listen for moments when they're struggling or where they're sharing with things. If they have objections, uh, try to look into it and give responses. Or sometimes I'll say, if I could give you a good response to the objection you just raised, would that make a difference? And the person might say, yeah, it actually would. Good, all right? But the person might say, no, it actually wouldn't. You know, it's an objection I have, but no, if you answer that, no, I still would not be interested. So it's worthwhile for them to see that the objection they have really is an intellectual objection, but it's not something which is going to make a big difference for them in terms of whether they're going to seriously consider the Christian faith. And we have to pray that God's spirit will work at their heart, work within them, and help them to, to come to faith. Okay, we're at the end of the time, but let me say one, one or two questions, and we'll break for lunch. I apologize apology for not giving more time. I've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> well, let me pray for us, then we'll head off to lunch. By the way, there's a clipboard back there. If you'd like to get the PowerPoint, go on sign of that. If you only want the PowerPoint, say that. If you don't say that, when I go to Europe, I'll be give, I give feedback and sort of the regular updates on what's taking place. And also, I'm working on some writing projects, and I'll send on what I'm, what I'm working on. So put your name and your email address in there. There's another a, there's a, there's a, there's a other flyer there that talks about our last trip to, to Europe. A few other things are in there, but that's most of what it's about. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that, that your word is truth, and that your truth is good news, and that following you, giving ourselves to you, is actually to discover ourselves that by giving our lives to you, we find our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage and boldness and wisdom as we share the faith which we have found in you with others. Lord, uh, help us to turn to you. And Lord, give us a love for them and desire that they would come to know you and openness to see doors as they open and opportunities arise and wisdom to know what to say and when to say it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you.